Hello, everyone. You're listening to Elisa Unfiltered, Living Life Out Loud, the podcast. My name is Elisa Curry-Lowitz, and I am here today speaking from the heart to inspire and motivate you to be your best self. There is so much more to life than the nine to five daily grind, and I want to share all of my secrets with you. So let's get started. my beautiful friends. Welcome to episode 104 of the Elisa Unfiltered Living Life Out Loud podcast. My name is Elisa and today it is Wednesday, March the 31st. Time is flying. Time is flying. It feels like spring where I live. I really hope that it feels like spring where you live too. The weather is shifting. The atmosphere is shifting. My mood is shifting. Anyone else feeling that? Also that collective like awakening this rebirth from the winter, from the winter months, that dormant. I just want to be outside and look outside when I'm stuck working on my computer. <laughs> and 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 I just feel this joy, this veil that's kind of lifted. Summer is coming. And before we get into today's show, I want to discuss something that really looms, that's looming in the air, that's really connected to this summer vibe that's that's coming and it's a little bit of a negative emotion right does anyone sort of feel some hostility or shame coming to the surface around summer and summer clothing bathing suits body image that type of thing I mean I promise to keep this brief but if you're one of the millions of women who feel that shame or the guilt or the pressure, there's also anxiety and depression around the way you look, how unmotivated you might feel, how unattractive you might feel. I want to say, I want to start this podcast by holding some space for that because those are real emotions and they come from a very dark, deep place within us. And I want to just sit here for everyone listening, take, sit up a little bit straighter, sit up a little bit taller, and let's take a collective deep breath in through the nose, out through the mouth. One more time, inhale. Now, there are many things that you can do to get a different frame of mind, to shift your perspective, to shift your energies when it comes to your body. Breathing just like that is one of them. I have five more simple strategies inside of my Bare Naked Goddess guide. And I wanna make sure that you get your hands on a copy of this right now. So press pause super quick and go to go.elisaunfiltered.com forward slash ebook. That's go.elisaunfiltered.com forward slash ebook. Get your copy, start doing the strategies, and you'll start to see some serious shifts right away. We need to show up for ourselves and have our own backs. The shame and the guilt cycles will not last forever, especially when you have these strategies, I promise you. And this ties in really nicely with my introduction for today's guest because I have been suffering for years with bad period cramps and hormone imbalances and bloating and feeling awful for like two weeks out of the month and just feeling really unattractive and down and I have incredibly bad PMS. I also have a fatty liver and other liver function issues, including autoimmune presentation. Yes, this is one of the reasons I'm so passionate about wellness and self-love and self-care and treating my body with respect. My body has been giving me some very real, raw and powerful messages in particular over the last five years. And I have recently begun a new protocol I touched on this slightly on the previous episode and I want to make it very clear that this is not a diet, which I'll explain later on. And I have begun to work with my guest today, who's Karen Hurd. Karen is a nutritionist and biochemist who holds a master's of science in biochemistry and has been in practice for over 30 years. Her philosophy on health is food has the power to kill, food has the power to heal. 
Now, the reason she has been put on my radar is because of her now world famous bean protocol. I've been on the protocol for three months now and my internal world has never felt better. That's a big claim, but I'm serious. And I'm really looking forward to sharing in this incredible conversation that is jammed with emotion, real life truths, scientific breakdowns, the power of our incredible bodies, tapping into our higher power and being resilient in life, and also how food can and will heal you. I have never had any doubts about that, that's for sure. So if you've never heard of the Bean Protocol or Karen Heard, be prepared to have your mind completely blown. This is a show that you're gonna wanna listen to from the beginning until the end. So let's get into it. I'm going to give the warmest of welcome to my guest today, Karen Heard. All right, Karen Heard, welcome to Elisa Unfiltered. Thank you so much for being here on the show today. I am delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. I have to say I've listened to, I don't know, dozens of podcasts where you have guested and your story just never gets old. You have such an amazing story. You're a brilliant woman and your passion for health and wellness, for nutrition, for your family, for getting to the bottom of things, to getting answers and just not taking no um, for an answer has just really empowered me and inspired me. And it's, I'm passionate about this subject as well. And I, I just cannot wait for the listeners of Lisa Unfiltered to hear your story. So I don't even know where to begin. How do we even begin this, Karen? (laughs) I can give a very brief synopsis. My story of how I got here is quite lengthy, but I mean, I can just truncate it. Yeah. Well, briefly how I got here. I would, I would love for you to do that. And then, um, because, well, For me, I feel as though it really started with Ruth. It did start with Ruth. It did start with Ruth. Okay, let's start there. We need to hear this story. Okay, Ruth is my daughter. Mm -hmm. And she was born way back in 1988. And anyway, when she was 18 months old, we had had our house sprayed for carpet beetles. So an exterminator came in Mm -hmm. and sprayed all the carpet for carpet beetles because we were living, we had just moved into a home and we did not know it, but the people who, you know, when they're getting a home ready for you to move into, they often put down, you know, they're trying to improve the look of the home. And so they put in new carpet. Well, it wasn't new. It was carpet that had been in someone's garage for several years, you know, rolled up and they just laid it on the floor and unbeknownst to them and us it was full of carpet beetle larvae and they all hatched out in the nice warm heat that we had in that month you know where we were running the heat and we were in Grant City Illinois at the time and so anyway they all hatched out and so we're not talking about you know you have you know three or four of these little beetles crawling around in the living room or no they were everywhere hundreds of thousands I don't know they could almost call a million you know you open up a kitchen drawer and they all come running out or the sock drawer and they all come running out and they're everywhere so you can only smash them hit them you know there's just too many of them they were overwhelming and so despite my hesitancy I called an exterminator now you should understand my hesitancy was because I had just come out of the United States Army and I I was a nuclear biological chemical warfare officer for our battalion okay and so I was very aware of the the consequences of different poisons and how they can be affected, you know, negatively on our troops. Mm-hmm. But I was concerned, you know, I didn't want to do an exterminator, but I just thought, okay, what am I going to do? I mean, burn the house down, then I guess we can get all the beetles <laughs> gone. So that's not going to work. So we called the exterminator. They came out and they said, you know, we're going to be spraying Durzban 2E. It doesn't have a smell to it, but, you know, everybody leave the house for so many hours. Keep the windows open. You know, the standard protocol when you get your house break. Did all that. We came back. And and within just a very short time, a few hours, all of us were not feeling well and had some symptoms of upper respiratory problems and just feeling like we had the flu. But my 18-month-old daughter, Ruth, went into grand mal seizures. And so, wow. of course, we rushed her to the emergency room. Yeah. And I said, and, you know, and she's seizing. And this was usually a, a seizure will last under a minute. Well, she'd been seizing for over 10 minutes. 
And so by the time we get, she's still seizing at the emergency room. And and they said, well, no, this, I said, could this be related? We just had our house sprayed, you know, for carpet beetles. And they said, no, 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 it couldn't be. And they put her on anti-seizure drugs, phenobarbital, and sent us back home. And the, we had another seizure. It was an hour and 10 minutes long. Same thing. And really? So I went, then I insisted that I go to St. Louis Children's Hospital, not our little local hospital there yep. in Granite City. And so they took her by ambulance there. Um, the emergency room physician had given her everything that he could to stop the seizing. Eventually it stopped on its own. But I think, I honestly think that was because my husband and I, because the emergency room physician said she's been seizing for an hour and 10 minutes, she is going to die. That's what they told us. And they couldn't stop it. And so my husband and I prayed over her, and that's when the seizure stopped. And I believe that was a miracle of God that that seizure stopped at that time. So then we had her transferred to St. Louis Children's Hospital. And I said, please look at this. You know, could this be a poisoning? You know, and by that time, I'd already contacted the exterminator and said, what did you use? What is the main ingredient in Dersban 2E? And it's chloropyrifos, which is an organophosphate, which is a nerve agent, which I knew all about from my Army training. And I trained my troops on for years when I was the officer in the Army doing that. And so I said, could it be this? I said, do you have to do a cholinesterate level? It's a simple blood draw. I mean, it's just, they're yep. already taking blood samples. It's yep. a simple blood draw. I said, please, just take a blood draw and test the cholinesterate levels. And that would be a clear indication whether she was poisoned or not. And okay. they said, no. Now, I was seeing neurologists at one of the top children's hospitals in the United States of America. And they said, no, I will never forget the day. They brought in a whole team of neurologists into her room, and I'm sitting there with Ruth, and they said, Mrs. Hurd, we want to tell you, you are barking up the wrong tree. This has nothing to do with an exposure to this Durspan 2E. She had a febrile seizure. I said, but she didn't even have a temperature, but just over 100 degrees, and that's mm -hmm. Fahrenheit, which is not really a temperature at all. Right. And I said, and the seizure lasted so long and she was diagnosed with double pneumonia. And that is the symptom of chloropyrophosphate poisoning. So your lungs filled with fluid and, you know, then you die. And they said, you were wrong. You are, you're barking up the wrong tree. You just need to go home. Everything is going to be fine. She's on all these high doses of phenobarbital and anti-seizure drug and just go home. And so I felt really stupid. I mean, I felt like no kidding. These, these MDs, they're, you know, they have all this training, you know. So, yeah, I have some training in the United States Army, but my undergrad degree is in Spanish, you know. <laughs> and so it's like, I don't know any of this. They're smarter than I am. You yes, know, they, of course. they have more training. Mm -hmm. And so I went home. She's on these very high doses of phenobarbital, which made her like a wild cat. That's one of the side effects of phenobarbital. They're just irritated and wild and scratching and biting. And, and we get back into the home where the spray is all over the carpet. Right. We were only there for a few hours. And all the symptoms that I had trained my troops when I was in the United States Army were there. Pinpoint pupils, slight cough, diarrhea, confusion, every symptom that I had ever trained them. Everyone was there, and I thought, I'm going to go put her in her crib because she was falling asleep in my arms, which is another thing. She's just this incredible somnolence. And so I said, I'm going to put her in her crib, and I will walk away, and I will come back in a short time, and she will be dead because her lungs will be filling with fluid. She will suffocate, and she will die of chloropyrophosphate poisoning. I said, I am not going to do that. I am leaving this house. I packed up. We left the house, and I said, I will not go back into that house until I get to the bottom of this. So I started calling all kinds of poison control centers. I started in St. Louis because that's right where I was, the local area. Mm -hmm. They said, well, you know, we've never heard of this before. Why don't you try calling the Chicago hotline? And I called there. Anyway, I called hotline after hotline, poison hotline. Finally got a hold of a poison hotline in Dallas, Texas. And they said, you really need to talk to Dr. Sheldon Wagner, who works at the university in Corvallis. That's out on our West Coast here in the U.S., and so I called him and thinking, I want to get, you know, and all this is, was very difficult on me. I was also pregnant at the time and I started to miscarry this baby. And oh, so no. I don't mean to cry, but it was very, very difficult. No, I'm going to cry too. <laughs> and, and so, you know, 
because you're always getting, well, let me connect you to the next person. You know how you have to, you know, mm -hmm. I haven't heard of that. Let me connect you to my superior and, you know, all this. And I thought, okay, I'll call Dr. Sheldon's Wagner office and see if I get a response. Mm -hmm. And I got a hold of his administrative assistant. They said, well, he's in right now. You can just talk to him. And so I, really? I could talk to the expert himself because he's a child toxicologist and his area of expertise was in chlorpyrifos and organic phosphates. And I talked to him, he said, absolutely she could have been poisoned. You have to have a carpet sample taken, you know, we have to see what is the amount of the, the, the this chemical that they use, the Dersban 2E in the carpet. I said, I already checked out with the lab in St. Louis, they want $7,000 up front before oh they can God. even do the testing and then mm. more money. Well, we're, we're poor, we're, we, we don't, we're not flush with cash at all. We're just trying to get food on the table, you know? I don't have $7,000 in my pocket to get a test done. And he said, and you should have had a cholinesterate level. Why didn't your physician order a cholinesterate level? I said, I tried to get them to order one, but they wouldn't. He said, two things. Number one, you send somebody, not you, somebody into that house, and you cut out 12 by 12 inch squares of carpet. And I want them from this area in the living room under her crib. And he was specific where you can get them next day mailed to me on dry ice. And I want them here in my lab. I will test them for you in free. I work at a university. I have a lab. I will test them. And so that's number one. Number two, give me your pediatrician's phone number and name. I will call him immediately. You need to go in for a cholinesterate level immediately. And so in 30 minutes after I hung up the phone from him, I got a call from the pediatrician. And they said, would you please bring Ruth in for a cholinesterate level? I said, yes, we will be in. So all the long and the short of it is that he tested the carpet. It came back at 100 times the strength that is considered safe. So oh. that, that was a clear indication she'd been poisoned. The cholinesterate level came back positive. She had been poisoned. And so then the administration of the St. Louis Children's Hospital, they contacted me and said, we are so sorry. We should have listened to you. We didn't listen to you. We have reprimanded the neurologist that gave you that diagnosis, you know, and said, go home. We are so sorry. Please don't sue the hospital, which I didn't. I, I mean, I had so much of it because what happened in this time, too, is I lost my baby no. that I was carrying. And oh. no one could say if it was the chlorpyrifos or not. I know that it was a chlorpyrifos, but because we don't, it's an association, there's no way to go back and test for it. You know, yes. we don't know. Oh. But anyway, everything was just extremely difficult. And we're living in a church nursery. We're at our church, and there's a nursery there. We're living in a nursery on the floor on blankets because I couldn't go back to the house. So finally, the church said, we'll put you in a hotel. And so the church paid for us to be in a hotel because we couldn't go back to the house because the poisoning, the carpet was, you know, so high in these levels. Yes. Long story short is that Ruth got the diagnosis that she'd been poisoned by an organophosphate called chlorpyrifos. We contacted the exterminator. They went back to the, the company, Dow Chemical, that produced it. They pulled back that entire batch. Uh, you know, they find, you know, there's a certain batch number sure, of sure. this break. They pulled it out of circulation altogether. Oh um, my God. They, I went, then we had to see physicians and to get, okay, so what do we do now? You know, mm -hmm. she's not going to seize anymore, so she didn't need the phenobarbital. That went away, but she was very ill. Her liver was failing. Her liver enzymes were off the chart, and they said she had only a short time to live because she was so immunocompromised and her liver was so compromised by the amount of poison that she would not live. And I went to specialist in St. Louis. I went to specialist. We drove to Chicago and took her to specialist in Chicago. We conferred on the phone with specialist in Dallas, Texas. They all had the same prognosis. She is not going to live. There's nothing you can do. And the rest of you, my husband and I, and I had two other children at the time, we were all sick. They said, and you will all probably die of some sort of cancer within the next five years. No. Oh, this is not a good prognosis. And so I said, isn't there anything I can do? They said, there's nothing. We don't know anything of how to repair the liver, you know, from this poison. We don't know anything. And so they gave me no hope. I will never forget the day I was sitting in the specialist office in St. Louis after we conferred with all the other specialists from Dallas and Chicago. And he said, you know, Mrs. Turd, we have never been able to, to 
document the passing of a person with this type of poisoning. And so would you mind if we take liver biopsies of Bruce liver, you know, at this interval and this interval so that we can document for medical science, you know, of how a poisoning progresses and how the liver fails. And I said, they're very painful. He said, yes, they're painful. I said, the answer is absolutely not. Oh, you will not thank put God. my child through. I am sorry for all your medical, you know, research and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. I am not going to put my child through that. I have got to find an answer for her to live. He has, she said, he said, she will not live. This is beyond anybody. So I said, I'm not giving up. What am I supposed to do? Let my child die? How I lost one? So I went to Washington University. It's a medical university in St. Louis. At that time, we're talking in the early 1990s, okay? So really 1990. There was no, you can't get on the internet and research. You know, sure. you can't go yeah. to the libraries and you, you know, you have all this PubMed research data. No, mm-hmm. you go to a library and everything's on microfish. Yeah. Remember the days of microfish. I do actually. And I went to the medical library there at WashU and said, I'm not a medical student here. I know the library is open to the public. Would you please help me in, you know, researching, point me in the right direction. You know, I need to find the microfiche on this, you know, I'm looking at organophosphate poisoning and liver failure. So I began to research and research. And I read everything from snake oil remedies to the latest research that the NIH, the National Institutes of Health is doing. And there was nothing. And so I decided, okay, I'll come up with my own program. From what I've learned from my research, I know there's something called an enterohepatic recirculation. And we recycle poisons at a rate that's 90 to 95%. And since then, um, it's been shown that it's 95% full recycling of our toxic waste through the enterohepatic recirculation. I, I know what the liver needs, so we have to be careful with a certain amounts of vitamin A because it's a stress on the liver, but it's helpful to the liver. And I went through, I came up with my own program. I mean, just for my reading at the library, it's like, why can't I? Nobody else, everybody else has just said, you know, sorry, you know, say your last goodbyes, you mm-hmm. know, spend what few minutes and hours you can with her, you know, and it was, and I, and I said, I'm going to, I'm going to pump down soluble fiber into this little girl's mouth, which she would not eat. At this point, she was so ill, she would not eat at all. And so right. I had to take and put the soluble fiber in this form of psyllium. Psyllium is a soluble fiber. Yes. In an oral syringe, you know, in a, in a, in, in uh, water and shoot it down the back of her throat, you know, so you should, she had to swallow it. So like giving a pill to a cat or a dog, you know, you yep. force them to swallow. And so I did that and I did that several times a day. And so as I did that within a week, she started to improve. Interesting. She started to eat again. She started to improve and she got better and better. And all the warts on her hands, she was covered with warts, she was covered with rashes, her immune system was shot. She yeah. was, I mean, she was, oh she my was God. very sick. Mm-hmm. And so she began to get better and better and better. And so then I took her back to the physician and he said, wow, she's better. And they started to take the liver test. Her liver is improving. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. What am I doing is soluble fiber is what I'm doing. And so she improved to the point they said, she's not going to die and so they said we don't know long-term neurological damage what will occur you know what brain damage may have been done that will be seen you know as she gets older and she is now she's in her 30s now Ruth is in her 30s and so we don't see any neurological damage that she has I think she's aging maybe a little bit more quickly than she should and she's in her 30s she's getting gray hair and I attribute that to her you know poisoning but she, we're doing everything we can to slow that down. And so she's she's doing really well. She got two degrees from the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. I mean, she is uh. sharp as a whip. She's smart as you can imagine. And so there seems to be no problems. But all of this, then, I never went to the news, the media, to say, look, you know, this or that. Yep. All of a sudden, I start getting phone calls from people saying, I read the article and the Globe Democrat, that's a newspaper that was there in St. Louis at the time. Right okay. now, it's closed. But anyway, at that time, there were two newspapers, and that was one of them. They said, I read this article in the newspaper. A little shorter article says, girl who is destined to live, or destined to die, lives. I thought, where did you see that article? Nobody came and interviewed me. I mean, it just appeared in a paper.
paper. And so I went back, you know, looked at the article, and sure enough, and, and people started to call me based on that article and say, what do you think I should do for my husband, for my son, for my daughter, for my father, for my, you know, to help them because they have been diagnosed with this. And I'll say, I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm, you know, my undergrad degree, I have a Bachelor of Arts in Spanish, you know, and I have some training in the Army, and, and you know, yeah. I did some research on it, you know, wash you for my little girl, but I don't know anything about this condition. They said no one's been able to help us. Would you please? I mean, down on my knees begging you, please, could you tell us what you think we should do? And I said, well, I can go to the library. I became really good at, at Washington U Library. I, I could really run the microfiche <laughs> machines and find stuff now, you know. And so I said, I could go research it and see. And I said, but you have to understand, I'm not a nurse. I'm not a doctor. I'm nothing. And they said, we don't care. And so then I would tell these people, you know, well, if it was me and I was using food because I don't have a way to prescribe a medication. All yeah. I have it at my, my fingertips is just food. And so I say, you should eat this or that. So what I recommend, but I don't know if that'll work or not. You know, we can just try. People started to get better. And then just kept rolling. And then finally, I started having people call me and ask if I would lecture on different areas of nutrition and health. And the first one that called me was one was uh, Southwestern Bell Telephone. And they were at that time in one bell tower in downtown St. Louis. Massive. It's the tallest skyscraper we have in St. Louis. And they had lots of employees thousands upon thousands and they so many employees had requested that i come speak they had like a brown bag seminar type of thing where you know the employees on their lunch hour once a week or once a month hour often they scheduled to come and get a seminar to learn about whatever you know mm -hmm. yeah and so they had so many requests for me to come and speak about nutrition and how to eat better to be better on certain topics and so I said, well, you know, I don't have a degree. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a doctor. You know, I always told them, I'm not, you know, and they said, there are so many requests. People, our employees want you to come anyway. So then I started giving once a month lectures at the Southwestern Bell Telephone. Soon, Drury Inns. Drury Inns is a hotel chain in St. Yep. Louis okay. area. Maybe in other places, too. They asked me to do brown bag seminars. Then the St. Louis Catholic Parish asked me to start giving seminars to their teachers and to the parents at the parent-teachers meeting. And then it just it went on. And finally, the University of Missouri called me and said, we would like you to teach classes. I said, I have no degree. They said, we know that. You need to get a degree. We would like you to do that. And so I said, okay, I'll go get a degree. And so then I enrolled in, a, you know, courses to become an official nutritionist. And that's how it started. And since then, I've gone on and gotten a master's degree in biochemistry. And I am currently completing a master's degree in public health. And I have just been continuing to learn and then practice. I mean, then I started to practice because people keep calling me. It's just like I was helping them for free, but now I'm doing this full time. And it's just like, well, maybe you could pay me. I remember my first, I would just charge $15, mm -hmm. $15, you know, dollars and say, you know, if you pay me $15, I could advise you and you have to know I'm not a doctor and I, I'm working on my degree in nutrition and this is who I am. And people, so it's just grown and grown and grown until here I am almost 30 years later to the point that I have all the degrees and I have, and I have had, when I say I've had over 30,000 clients, that's a real underestimate It's probably triple or quadruple that is because I don't count anybody that's on podcasts. I don't, sure. you know, I don't even know about the people that I've reached that I've never even talked to, but I've talked to well over 35,000 people personally, you know, personally saying this is what you need to do. As since I started my official practice, you know, and actually was charging them $15 and then it went up to 35, you know, as the years went on, it's just like $15 is too cheap for, for an hour or two, you know, okay, I'm getting wiser with the business sense, so I've also had to learn how to be a businesswoman as I came along, so wow. that's how it all started. That is the most incredible story I've ever heard. I, I, I have so many questions and I think, I think the first one is why fiber? What is it in the psyllium fiber that connect, helped you connect the dots? What was the fiber doing? The fiber is a very complex polysaccharide. That's a big word to say that its molecular structure is like a net. And it can capture certain molecules in the net. And yeah. those molecules cannot be reabsorbed into the body. 
See, we have a, a reabsorption. It's really a recycling system that is conservative. That means your body's always trying to utilize everything that it can over and over again, be mm -hmm. conservative. And so our liver is clearing out all fat-soluble waste, and it puts it into a digestive fluid called bile. And the bile travels down into our gastrointestinal tract via little tubes called biliary ducts. And then when the bile arrives there, the bile has two purposes. One, to carry out all the fat-soluble waste that the liver is clearing from the bloodstream, which would include chlorpyrifos, or this, it was a fat-soluble poison that Ruth had yes. know, been exposed to. So it clears all fat-soluble waste, which are all our hormones, which are glycophosphates, which we find in, you know, like fertilizers and that people use, you know, you hear about, you know, uh, non-organic farms and what they're using on our crops. It's what's in Roundup, you know, that can cause cancer. And all those, the main carcinogenic substances, carcinogenic is cancer-causing, those are all found in fat-soluble toxins. Okay. Okay. And so the liver is clearing all this out. The liver is an incredible organ. So it clears all this out. And so where does, what does it do with all this fat-soluble waste? Uh, throw it down to the kidneys so that we can urinate and pee it out? No. That doesn't happen because fats and water, see, the kidney only deal with water-soluble waste. They can't, chemically, they can't mix. They just, they don't even speak to one another. In fact, they're afraid of each other. So the only place that we can get rid of fat-soluble waste is through the liver. Well, what is the liver's exit? It produces this digestive fluid called bile, which one, we can put the fat-soluble waste in, and two, it helps us digest the fatty acids that we're eating. So if you have something with olive oil on it or any th or butter or any type of cheese, anything that has a fat, you have to have bile to digest that. Okay. So it's got this twofold main purpose, is twofold. And so the bile then, you know, does its job. It's carrying out the waste and it travels down through your duodenum. That's where it's deposited. It's deposited directly. It's just underneath your sternum and above your belly button. That's most people put their hand there and call it their stomach. It's actually your small intestine. That's okay. So... <laughs> So it goes through the duodenum, which is part of the small intestine, the first part, and then into the duodenum, the second part of the small colon. Small intestine, small colon are synonymous terms. Yes. And then okay. it moves into the ileum. And at the terminal right. part of the ileum, there's a little valve. So right here at the lower right, the lower right quadrant of your abdomen. So you know, if you put your hand in the lower right quadrant, there is the terminal part of the ileum, the last part of the small colon. And there's a valve there called the ileocecal valve that is shut tight. And it will open up and allow the contents from the small colon to enter the large colon, because that's where we enter the large colon. However, at that terminal part, before that valve opens, we're going to have an absorption of fats from that area, from the terminal part of the ileum. Fats are not absorbed up in your stomach. Fats are not absorbed in your duodenum and your duodenum, but only in the ileum, at okay. the terminal part of the ileum. Mm -hmm. Well, what's so significant about this? Because... Fat-soluble wastes are contained in the fat molecule. Micelle is what we call it, the micelle of bile. Okay. And so we're absorbing fats there at the terminal part of the ileum. So why is this so significant? Because these fat-soluble wastes are also reabsorbed into the bloodstream. Interesting. So all the chlorpyrifos or whatever we're trying to get rid of, all our hormones are almost all the hormones, not the thyroid hormone, that's the only exception, but all of our female hormones, our stress hormones, the, the male hormones, testosterone, they're all cleared this way, but they all get dumped back in. And we know this, we see this from drug studies all the time. We're always checking the half-life of the drug because it recycles and it goes back into, depending if it's water-soluble or fat-soluble, it goes back into the bloodstream. At what percent? When I was first studying this, it was thought to be 90 to 95%. All the current research is showing a definitive 95% of all your fat-soluble waste is going to go back into your bloodstream. And so really? I knew, because I learned this at Wash U, you know, in all my studies, is that I had to somehow interrupt this. I had to get this bile that's carrying all this poison out. It's got to go into the toilet because if we can get past that ileocecal valve, let that valve open and pass all that garbage into the large colon, there is no absorption of fats done in the large colon. We only absorb water. And so then it would pass through the large colon and we'd excrete it into the toilet in the form of a bowel movement. We throw it away. We throw it away. And it leaves your body. It doesn't recycle. That's why the soluble fiber saved Ruth's life. And why it saved so many lives since then. Because it's throwing away all of this fat, soluble waste, not allowing it to recycle. Because that polysaccharide and soluble fiber 
it captures the micelle. That's the, the fat molecule that's got all that nasty stuff that we don't want. And it can't escape the net. And okay. 100% of soluble fiber is excreted. Not 99, not 98. 100% of soluble fiber is going into the toilet in the form of a bowel movement. And anything that is captured in the net is going out too. So what you're saying is that the soluble fiber will bond to this bile that holds the toxins and pulls it out. Exactly. In, in short. Okay, yes. interesting. So is there a difference between soluble and insoluble fiber in this regard? A huge difference. Okay. Insoluble fiber cannot capture a bile micelle. It won't okay. work. It usually just absorbs water and adds bulk to your stool, although soluble fiber can will absorb water too, but it, it has this capacity to capture these fats. Right. But insoluble fiber does not. So people say, well, I'll eat vegetables. Lots of vegetables will do this. Vegetables, in one cup of vegetables, there's 0.5 grams of soluble fiber. Okay. And then people say, okay, well, I'll eat oatmeal. I've heard oatmeal has soluble fiber. Well, oatmeal does, but in one cup of oatmeal, there are two grams of soluble fiber, which is nice. It's a start, but we need more than that. But if a person would eat beans, legumes, pinto beans, navy beans, uh, lentils, garbanzo beans, the ones that are hard, we soak and boil, those type of beans, not green beans, not peanuts. A lot of people think peanuts are a legume, and they are a legume technically by biological classifications, the way they grow. It has nothing to do with their, their nutritional content. Oh, interesting. But in a cup of beans, like your garbanzos, or your, your, which are also chickpeas, or lentils, or your navy beans, kidney beans, in one cup, there are 10 grams of soluble fiber. Compare that to oatmeal, which is the one that's coming closest to that at two grams, compared to your vegetables at 0.5 grams. We need to be eating beans. We need to be eating beans because they're the highest source of soluble fiber that we have. And that's the one thing that in the US, and from what I've seen from the Canadians, because I have many, many clients that are Canadians, mm -hmm. is that this is something that's not on the table three times a day. In nope. fact, maybe, not even but once a month, you know? <laughs> Seriously. So this is something we should be consuming at every meal. You have beans at breakfast, beans at lunch, beans at dinner. And then we will keep your liver cleansed and we keep all this stuff from recycling over and over and over again. And then if you're in a crisis, like my child was in a crisis, I was giving her the psyllium every time I could get her to gag it down many, many times a day so that we could get rid of as much of that chloropyrifos as possible. All right. I have so many questions. Uh, my, my next one that I really want to, so something in the health and wellness world, I mean, I, I touch into the health and wellness world in many areas with, um, with my, with my job. And I also work with restaurant owners who own, um, a vegan restaurant and I'm, I'm a big part of the wellness community. All right. I'm, I'm anti-diet culture in many ways in the sense where, uh, we put our worth in the way we look and dieting is for us to lose weight and in that regard. However, I have found over the last five, 10 years in healing myself in my through food in my own way, your this story to be one of the most unbelievable. And when I speak about uh, food healing and doing cleanses, quote unquote, the, the common theme that I hear from everyone is that the liver will do the detoxing for you. You don't not no cleanse or detox will actually cleanse or detox the liver. What do you, can you speak to that? The liver will always take out the waste products. You don't have to stimulate the liver to do that. It is part of its job. It will always do that. Okay. And it will always put that trash into the bile. But the problem is, is that it recycles. So what has to happen is that you have to get rid of the bile. And that's the problem with like liver cleanses and flushes that people do, yes. is that they're causing a large release of bile because you can do, you know, the lemon juice and the oil, you know, people do that. That's one of the, you know, liver yep. detox things. Yes. And you'll get this large release of bile. Well, you can go eat a big fatty meal and you'll get a large release of bile because it's got to digest fatty acids. Well, that's nice, you got a large release of bile, but 95% of it's gonna go back into the bloodstream. So okay. you really didn't get rid of but 5% of it. And so we have to 
stop this absorption of these things. And the only way, the only way to do that, there isn't anything else. I mean, well, there is, there's a couple of drugs that are on the market that some people who have gallbladder problems or have liver problems, you know, can get that do a similar job as the soluble fiber, but not nearly as effective. And it's expensive. And there's lots of side effects to those drugs. So the food answer is just eat your beans. And if people say, well, I'm allergic to beans or I don't like beans, then buy psyllium. It has no calories. It has, you, you don't, you don't, it is incredibly rare to have an allergic reaction to psyllium. All it is is just soluble fiber. There's no carbo, there's no other carbohydrates. I've, I have to just put this in here because they'll say, well, no, it says it has this many carbohydrates when I look at the psyllium label. In the United States, we have classified things for carbohydrates, and you know we have a big category: carbohydrates and sugars, and then you know starches come in there. And fiber had to be put someplace. I was an advocate of making fiber its own separate category, fiber. But no, it got thrown <laughs> underneath carbohydrates. And so all carbohydrates carry four calories per gram. So whenever you look at a product and it says, "Well, it has as many calories, so it's giving you calories," not psyllium. It has zero calories. It's because it's a fiber, 100%. But because it's lumped in with carbohydrates, it automatically gets assigned four calories per gram. Without, it's just such, it's such a fallacy. Yeah. And I'm I'm fighting to have that change. But you change the labeling laws in the United States. This is a big fight. Oh. You know, this does not happen overnight. Good on, good on you. Yeah, the car, the the fiber kind of cancels out the carbohydrate, does it not? Like for every, it's for gram to gram, it cancels it out, basically. Well, it's not even there. It's not even, it's there. Not even there. It's not even there. It doesn't exist. It's mm-hmm. just been improperly mislabeled as having carbohydrates in it, and it doesn't have any. Fiber is labeled a carbohydrate. Mm-hmm. Fiber should not be labeled carbohydrate. It should be labeled a fiber, which gives you no calories. Understood. Zero calories. All right. So I was actually, you came into my life in a very unique way because I was publicly speaking about my, um, estrogen dominance. I have, I'm almost 40 years old. I was on birth control for 17 years. I have extremely bad periods. I have terrible PMS and I'm basically non-functioning for at least 42 hours. My first two days of my cycle, sometimes into the third day, I throw up. I have like horrible periods. They're horrible. And I was just publicly saying, and this woman, she DMs me on Instagram. is like, have you ever heard of the bean protocol? And I was like, no, tell me everything. And she's like, well, I'm doing this course and it's just try and eat a few tablespoons of beans every day. Just see how you feel. And I was like trying to ask her more and more. She did give me a lot of information, never pointed me to you. I never heard your name before. I never heard anything. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to try this. This was actually just this past December. Okay. So just before Christmas. So I'm eating beans and, and, and I'm thinking, you know, I was desperate and I was thinking after about two weeks, I wasn't about to get my period, but I was like, something's changing in my body. Like I feel like I have more energy or something was changing. So I just kept doing it. My partner, Michael, he's doing it too. He's feeling better as well as a a man who's doesn't have his period, obviously. And then at the beginning of February, you came into my life and I have been doing so much research on this bean protocol because, uh, It's absolutely fascinating. My periods are better. I have way less after I'm in three months now. So it's basically been almost exactly three months to this day that I started. And I literally I'm functioning. I worked out on my first day of my period. That is a non thing. I didn't work out hard. I just moved. I had some movement practice. Normally I'm dead in bed. My PMS has totally changed. My life is absolutely changing. And I'm like, is this the beans? That's the only thing that I changed in my diet was eating beans. Yes. It's the beans. It's because those hormones, your overproduction Mm -hmm. of your female hormones, very specifically the estrogen and then progesterone will also be overproduced at the same time. Yes. Then what is happening is those are fat soluble hormones. Your liver has been clearing them out for you since you went through menarche, whenever you were 13 or 14 or 12 or however you, yeah. you were when you had your first period. And so 
It's always been cleaning them out, but you've been recycling 95% of them. And hormones are not broken down. You know, we'll say, well, the liver breaks down food or breaks down, it's actually different molecules. We do not break down hormones. They're very tiny, tiny molecules. They are not broken down. And so they are just flowing through you active. And so you've been recycling them for your almost 40, yeah. you know, for 25 years, say. Yeah. And so they build up in your body until your PMS. If you didn't start eating beans, I will guarantee your PMS would get worse and worse and worse and yes. worse. Now we're diagnosed with endometriosis. Now we have cysts on the ovary now we have fibroids that have grown what's all that from from too much hormone now you're diagnosed with cancer estrogen fed well duh we knew that was coming but the general public just doesn't know that that's coming because you've been recycling these hormones for 25 or so years and so when you started to eat the beans you started to throw them away and they didn't recycle and so then you lowered your overall serum concentration serum is your blood levels of this estrogens to a lower level so then you have less and less PMS and as you continue to eat the soluble fiber you will have less and less and you know we talk about the bean protocol I want to be specific we need to have beans in our life or soluble fiber in the form of psyllium but there are other things too because if you're drinking caffeinated beverages and you're also eating beans well caffeine increases your estrogen production so as fast as we're trying to remove it you're increasing it by doing caffeine mm -hmm. so you know there's or sugar sugar also in, increases your your production of hormones and so it's a, a collaborative thing it's like yes we're going to eat the beans but we're going to get rid of this stuff over here mm -hmm. that create more problems for us and then i, I mean i'm doing this job for three decades I, you will heal. You will heal. And so will everybody else that has PMS and all kinds of other issues because we're finally letting the body do its job. I have a, I have a caffeine question because I've recently stopped drinking coffee. So I'm just over one month of no coffee. It's not as hard as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and no caffeine in, in general. Like I'm not, I don't drink pop. I don't, I eat very, very little bit of sugar, which I have a sugar question following this, but what is caffeine's effect on your estrogen in the liver? Okay. It actually is stimulating the production of estrogen, not from the, the liver doesn't make any hormones. It's just clearing. Hormones. Okay. Okay. I understood. Your ovaries are producing estrogen, and then also your adrenal glands produce a certain a form of estrogen. We have different yes. strengths and forms of estrogen. And so the ovaries and the adrenal glands will produce estrogen. You also have fat cells that's called adipose tissue, which can produce low-level amounts of estrogen. And so we have several things that will produce estrogen. When you do caffeine, you stimulate the adrenal glands and the ovaries to produce larger amounts of estrogen. Not the fat cells, but those two okay. those two glands. And so then you put more estrogen into the bloodstream. So does drinking coffee negate the bean protocol? Or does it negate the effects of, of this fiber? You will not see the effects that you should have seen. Like, you know, you're three months into this and you're yeah. seeing some nice definitive changes. If you had given up your caffeine three months ago, you would be so much better now. It would blow your mind. I mean, I know your mind's already blown. <laughs> My mind is blown. I, it's actually blown. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, your, your improvements would be even greater. So the bean, the beans are still working. We're still removing the waste, but you're you're putting in more estrogen. So we're, okay. we're, we're trying to, you know, we're we're trying to. Uh, drain the bathtub, of, you know, drain it of all the garbage, you know, let all the dirty water out, but you got the tap on and your tap is not clean water. It's all dirty water. So you put more dirty water in as fast as we're trying to drain it out. Yes. So it would be, it's, so the, it's still working, but you're just not going to see as dramatic of effects as you could if you would have given up the caffeine right away. And good job on giving it up a month ago. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So in terms of sugar now, sugar has a bad rep. Uh, in many ways. And I understand that today's diet, we're eating 5 million times the amount of sugar that our bodies can really handle. I There's no denying that. You read every single label and there's some sort of sugar injected into 90% uh, of our food. And I'm curious to know what sugar's effect is on the body and on liver. Uh, and how does eating beans help you 
with this? Okay. There's there's a few questions well, actually, in there. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little more, it's quite a bit more complicated, but I'll try to be brief and Okay. When we eat sugar, our blood sugars go up because sugar is rapidly absorbed into the bloodstream. And I'm not talking about in 10 minutes, we're talking in split seconds. seconds. Yes. The sugar will enter the bloodstream. Yes. When the sugar enters the bloodstream, your body has a defense mechanism to say if her blood sugar continues to spike like this, we have just a few minutes and she will be in diabetic coma and be dead. And that's what would happen. And so then the pituitary gland sends a message to your pancreas to say, produce large amounts of insulin, a hormone. Let that resonate in your head, a hormone, which is fat soluble. And we produce large amounts of insulin to slam down your blood sugar levels that are just spiking because you just ate sugar. So now, how much insulin did you release because you spiked? Whenever you eat sugar, it's not a gradual increase in sugar. It's a spike. Yeah. And so now we release insulin, not just with gradual little amounts of insulin. We release a boatload of insulin to bring down the spiking blood sugar. So now your blood sugars are crashing. That's why people who eat sweets, it's just a short time later, they need another sweet because now their blood sugars are crashing. Now you don't have enough sugar in the bloodstream to mm -hmm. be able to function because we have to have a certain amount of glucose. If you don't have glucose, you will die. It's called insulin shock. You produce too much insulin, you die of insulin shock. It's the opposite of diabetic coma. Both of them are fatal. So then your body goes, oh no, now our blood sugar is coming down too fast because we call for such a large release of insulin. We need to get sugar into the bloodstream. Well, you just finished your fifth donut, you know, and so you're thinking, well, I really shouldn't have a sixth right now. I'll wait another hour or whatever. And so you don't do anything, but the body's in a panic state knowing that you are going to go into insulin shock in just moments if we don't do something. So we will produce sugar. Who produces the sugar? The liver. Okay. The liver can produce sugar for you through a process called gluconeogenesis. Gluco is sugar. Neo is new. Genesis is creation. The liver will create sugar for you. But to do that, the liver has to have a hormone to signal it to do that. And those hormones are fat soluble. And specifically, there's one called glucogen, which tries to shut down the production of insulin. And then another hormone called norepinephrine and epinephrine, which we collectively call adrenaline. adrenaline. So you're going to have an adrenaline rush. So that we can create sugar because you ate sugar and your sugars went up so high they had to go down really low because of the insulin released. And then you have this gluconeogenesis so your sugars come back up. And so this adrenaline, as well as all these other hormones that I just mentioned, the insulin the glucogen, who clears all that out? Your liver. Where does it go? Into the bile. Where does it go? To the gastrointestinal tract and recycles at 95%. So the glucogen and the insulin then are always affecting your blood glucose levels, but that adrenaline affects your anxiety yes. and your depression yes. and your mood and yes. your energy. And so you, you have just affected how you feel, your emotions. You go from Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde, you know, you're, <laughs> yes. this, you know these, you're like, stay away from her. I think she's going to bite my head off, you know? Yep. And all of that has to do with adrenaline releases. And we haven't even touched on adrenaline is also a neurotransmitter. So it's affecting your brain. And we also have glucoreceptors on the neurons itself. And the more you stimulate those glucoreceptors, the more the neuron degrades and you Neurons don't regenerate. So if you kill a neuron, it's forever gone. And we know that sugar is directly associated with dementia. Long mm -hmm. intake, long time, you know, your lifelong intake of sugar is directly impacting dementia. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, and then I haven't even talked about the adipokines. That means whenever you have sugar, what are we doing with all this excess sugar when the insulin is released? Well, the insulin's converting it into a triacylglycerol, which is a fat. It's a fat, or that should be alerting us again. It's a fat. The sugar's been converted to a fat. Who's clear of fat? The liver. And so we store those fats in adipose tissue, which we call fat cells. Whenever you take a triglyceride and you shove it into an, uh, an, an adipose tissue, then you'll have a release of adipokines. Well, what are adipokines? They're, they're inflammatory agents. They cause you to have muscle aches and soreness, and you yes. have inflammation all over and you. Well, welcome to our world. This is what people are suffering from. I mean, I could go on and on. I haven't even talked about how it lowers the immune system function and what it does to T cells. But I mean, it just, it's a bad news thing. Oh my so gosh. It's just bad news. It's incredible how you feel and how quickly your body will respond to, I don't, I'm not sure I like to say the word cutting out sugar completely. And that does give me a follow-up. I have a follow-up question to that because I notice the effects when I stop eating sugar on my body. I mean, it's, it's clear as day. 
I notice the second if I ate like a handful of gummy bears, how my spike goes up and how I have an immediate crash. I, I've paid attention to that over my life. It's part of my awareness practice to see how food affects my body, how I feel, because I, I realize that food affects us all slightly differently. And uh, I my question, I guess, to you now is, what is the severity of having small amounts of sugar, like natural sugars, for example, honey, fruits, things like that? It would depend upon your health situation. Mm -hmm. If you had dementia, you have arthritis, you have PMS, you know, you have, you have a situation, you have a health situation, it's detrimental because it's just adding to that situation. But let's say you're healthy, you have no health problems at all, then having a couple pieces, having fruit twice a week is okay because you can handle that. Now, there are some... We haven't even gotten into genetics yet and epigenetic factors. I mean, this is a very, very wide and very, I mean, what we're doing is we're covering a mile wide and inch deep right now. Of okay? course, of course, of course. Any of these subjects, a mile deep if you want. But yes. we have epigenetics that are coming in here and some people because of their genetic makeup, which we cannot change our genetic makeup. I'm sorry, your DNA is your DNA. It is what it is. They are more susceptible. So like if I had a kid with ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or a a child that had seizures, sugar is just off the table. There is no twice a week fruit for them because it will precipitate a seizure. It will precipitate their hyperactivity or their attention deficit. I mean, it's just because they are too sensitive to this up and down. But then you have some people, they're not sensitive at all. And that's their genetic makeup. And would you have everyone eating beans? Like, is there a difference between like a healthy person and, and let's say someone who has like toxic mold or candida or something like that? Would they be eating different types of beans or? Yes. Would they be eating different frequency of beans? Okay. So if you were a healthy person, a healthy person should be eating beans, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Okay. That's just good health. Okay. So that you can live long. And prosper. Sounds like Spock on Star Trek. Live long and prosper. I don't know if you're, you know. Oh, I'm a tra- I'm, I'm an old school. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you live long and prosper. You want to eat beans three times a day. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's just part of your routine. Mm-hmm. If you have allergies or mold or, you know, a specific situation, then we're going to have to eat them more frequently. How frequently? That would depend on the severity of your symptoms and what what is your condition. Is it allergies? Is it mold? Is it PMS? And that's what my courses are for, for because I'm very specific in amount and how much, and yes. how often, and so then I can be specific. But there'll be a time when you are well, and you would just go on maintenance beans, you know, three times a day. That's what I call maintenance beans is three times a day. We wouldn't have to eat them so frequently. Unbelievable. Okay, so if you uh, were to, if anyone here is to Google Karen Hurd, and I'll have all the links in the show notes of this podcast, you go to your, your website and you have, like, how many courses do you have? There's like 20. 17. 17. There's, there's 17. There's, because neurological, I'm about to publish the one on neurological problems. This is dementia, Parkinson's, okay. Lewy body, uh, that's everybody's dementia, ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease. It so covers a lot. And then I have a heart disease course that will be coming out after that. And then my cancer course. Because I deal with all these, but. Well, you know, because you do the tech for your stuff, you just don't whip off a course in the matter of a day. This no. is a lot of work and research. And so, yeah, so I'm about to get my neurology course off the ground in the next month or so. And then, but I have 17 out there that are published right now and three more in the works. And so another one in my mind that I just talked to my, my, uh, all my, my think tank people about, about how to be disciplined enough to do this because people are addicted to sweets. I mean, it's an, it's an actual addiction, a physiological addiction yes. to sweets and coffee too. It's a physiological or caffeine, I'll be specific. Caffeine is just physiological addiction. Absolutely. So. I, I didn't cut my addiction to drinking a hot beverage. I still do like hot lemon water or some sort of herbal tea because it, it and, and that totally suffices for me now. I mean, yeah, I had some headaches. Yeah, I had some mood swings for a couple of weeks, but I was beaning, and I think the beaning really helped me <laughs> to yeah, cut. You come through caffeine withdrawal, and yes, and the headaches and the mood swings are all part of caffeine withdrawal. And caffeine withdrawal does last two weeks. It lasts two weeks. Okay, very good. So does, yeah, your yeah, course. Your courses are on weight loss and allergies and, and, and thyroid hormones. 
you name it, it's covered on there. Stress, anxiety, depression, you have a protocol for that. Yes, I do. Unbelievable. And you've been helping tens of thousands of people with this. I... I cannot thank you enough for joining me today or joining us and ha- and telling your story because it's so fascinating. I want to do a follow-up <laughs> and ask you 20 million more questions. I have so many written down, but I won't take up any more of your time. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much. Is there anything else you would like to say to the listeners? Yes, I would like to say this. You can do this. Do not say, oh, it's too hard. No. Never, never, never give up. You can do this. Beautiful. I do actually, I, I almost forgot. I can't believe I almost, I'm so like overwhelmed here with this unbelievable show. I always ask my guests two questions before they leave. They're kind of Oprah Winfrey questions. <laughs> um, the first one is, what does the world need more of? say beans I mean, but I mean if you're looking at general all kinds of things I mean I would you know there's all kinds of other qualities but beans would put us in the best possible health to get all these other qualities that's so. amazing that's amazing and if you could be known for one thing specifically what would it be I think I know the answer to this but if you could be known for one thing what would it be it would be for the beans Yeah, you can call me the bean queen. (laughs) I will call you the bean queen. Thank you so much for joining us today. You're an absolute shining star in this world. And I hope that every single human is touched by your message. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. That's all for me today. I want to thank my guest, Karen Hurd, for coming on the show to share her story and wisdom about beans. Who would have thought? They have changed my life and I have no doubt that they will change yours too. So thank you, Karen. If you haven't done so yet, please head over to Apple Podcasts or Google Play and subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Follow the show on Spotify and share on your social media. Thank you so much for listening. Have the best day, everyone. Until next time. Bye.